Uh, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. And so today we're we're on the fifth Sunday of the Epiphany in the lectionary. And so our lessons today were Psalm 27, 1-7, Habakkuk, um, chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, and then skipping over to 17 and to 19, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 11, and Matthew 5, 13 to 20. So what I want to focus on this week is literally the very last verse that was read, which is, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The predicate for that is Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. The law will not pass away until all is accomplished. And so then he switches over and starts talking about this righteousness. Unless it exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's the most demotivating thing Jesus could possibly have said to his audience. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were thought to be those who kept righteousness better than anybody else. And so for Jesus then to say, if your righteousness is not more than theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, would be to say, you're all out of luck. Every single one of you here is out of luck because you know it and I know it. Your righteousness is never going to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's true. And in Christianity, we would say, it's not my righteousness that matters. It's the alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus that's given to me. And I'm clothed in his righteousness at my baptism. I'm clothed with Christ. And so now it's not my righteousness, although it is my righteousness. I can claim it through the blood of Jesus and my confession of his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Then it's my righteousness. All the while knowing it's not my righteousness, but that doesn't demotivate me. It motivates me. It causes me to want to be more like the one who died for me. <clears throat> you know, there's a... Um, an idea that runs through pretty much every human being I've ever met, although if you're a psychopath, maybe not. Um, if somebody has done something so great for you, if they saved your life, if they, you'd feel some sense of gratitude towards that person that would probably never go away. And that's the way we are intended to feel towards Jesus. But he doesn't leave us after he saves us. He takes us along the journey with him. And so we can then become partners with him in the work of saving others <clears throat> through our words and through our deeds, through loving other people. And I believe that, that in thinking about this whole idea of how does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, well, that beggars the imagination if you're there in that moment with Jesus. But, but what it then does is to say, you need to do something here. You need to explain how that's even possible, what that even means. The scribes and the Pharisees would say, yep, you do. You need to explain what it means that you could be more righteous than me. And so with the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in the Sermon on the Mount, and then working through every single thing Jesus does, not just through his life, but in his resurrection and his death, principally, he shows us what it means to have greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. And sometimes it's hard to see that, and sometimes it's hard to know exactly where it is that that happens. There's a scripture a little bit further down the line that we're going to read in a couple of weeks where Jesus says, love your enemies. 
He said, I've heard, you've heard it said, love your friends. He said, no, I'm telling you, love your enemies. And so that is the idea that I want to focus on today in, in figuring out what it is that Jesus means by that. But, but it's also in all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the things that he's going to say in the next uh, several passages from the Sermon on the Mount, where he's going to talk about, uh, <clears throat> you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Then he does the same thing with lust and said, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery with her. And he goes on through oaths and he goes on through retaliation. He goes, and then comes to love in your enemies. Those first several things that he's talking about there, a lot of that just comes directly from the Ten Commandments. And so he's applying the Ten Commandments at that base level of saying, don't commit murder, right? I mean, everybody goes, yep, mm-hmm. That's what's always said, don't commit murder, so we don't commit murder. And he says, hey, but if you hate, then you've committed murder. Yeah, you've hated your brother here in this particular context. So he, he's raising the bar on all this. He, he is not, uh, he, that's the thing that, that I think we get lost in today in the world is, is that we have some idea that it's okay for us to kind of tone down the bar on certain kinds of, of sins. And if you don't go along with that, then, well, you're accused of focusing on that to the exclusion of other things. And you don't have to do that. But what you have to do is draw the line in the sand that Jesus drew and say, I, I can't let even the least of these commandments be defined down. Everything in scripture, I have to define exactly how, how it is, unless Jesus somehow lowered the bar on something. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you realize is Jesus never lowered the bar on anything. He increased the bar, and that's why he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's it's even worse news (laughs) than it first sounded like, because at first it was like, okay, they're the most righteous people we know, and and I can't even get to that bar. Jesus says, oh, okay, hey, no, you, you you have a bad understanding because they give you a bad understanding. They don't even understand the true intent of the law to be even greater than that. There's a higher demand on you. And so when he says, don't hate your brother, don't lust after a woman, don't take oaths, don't do all these other things, what he's saying is, let's reflect on the Ten Commandments a second, guys. Don't uh, lust after a woman is don't covet. So it's all these things that he's talking about is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But he raises it to a higher level. And as soon as you hear it, you intuitively, as a Christian at least, and possibly that's simply because we have the Holy Spirit, you, you affirm every bit of that and say that makes perfect sense. But it makes perfect logical sense too. I mean, that's the really funny thing is, is that, that what makes sense to us, having heard Jesus say it, and understanding that sin is something that comes from within, and then what happens with that sin on the outside is just simply an overflow of the heart, then, yep, absolutely, that's right. But psychologically, it's true. It's absolutely true. Whatever you give your, your, your mind to and your heart to, if you begin to hate somebody, you dwell on the hatred. You dwell on, as we talked about earlier, the worst possible thing that person has done or the worst possible part of their character. And now they've no longer... Um, they're no longer Laurie. They're Laurie the whatever, you know, and, and that's who she is. You know, how many times have you heard somebody say, that's just who that person is. That's exactly who that person is. They're of this, they're of that. Nah, nobody's just that. <laughs> There's more to it. We're, we're more complex as beings. 
And, it, and we, we come down to, okay, well, then love the sinner and hate the sin. And C.S. Lewis said, I used to think that was the most trite thing in all of Christianity, was to say, you've got to love the sinner, but hate the sin. He said, I always thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. And then he realized, you know, I've got a perfect example of that, me. <laughs> I, I don't hate myself, but I do hate the things that I do. I still love myself in spite of the fact that I can see these things about myself. And so there is a huge truth in that. We have to decouple that sin from that person at some level and, and be able to deal with the sin separately from dealing with the sinner. And the way we deal with the sinner is, if they're a brother, is, is compassion. The way we deal with a sinner, if they're not a brother, is compassion. <laughs> so we're supposed to love everybody, Jesus says. Don't harbor hate. Don't let that happen. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. All that kind of idea is to say, nope, I'm going to let go of that. I'm not going to hate anybody. I'm going to remind myself always that's a brother. That's another created in the image of God. And so he, he, he starts there at the level of brother and then goes to don't you know, some random woman, don't lust after a random woman. And then he gets down to the nub of things when he says, love your enemies. All right, the other things I can affirm, I can affirm, I can affirm. Yep, you're exactly right. This will lead to that. Therefore, I should not do that with my brother. I shouldn't do it with a woman. I shouldn't, you know, those things. And then you finally get to enemies and, and now you've gone from preaching to meddling, right? Um, because don't tell me not to have enemies. Don't tell me not to hate people. Um, don't tell me to love them particularly because what he's doing is, is, is Jesus is, is tearing down boundaries at one level, but he's increasing the commandment. So the commandment is infinitely harder than you understand it to be. So thanks, Jesus. Most of us don't typically need you to give us hopelessness. <laughs> We came seeking hope and you gave us hopelessness because you told me my righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then unfortunately, when you describe what it means, I can't do that at all. You can't. That's the honest truth. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. If he's speaking only to a natural man, if he does not die, does not be resurrected, is not ascended, and the Spirit then comes it's hopelessness to do this. So not only does he give the commandment, not only does he give you hope through the resurrection, he takes away the hopelessness that I can ever be righteous at all by giving us his Holy Spirit. It's the only hope we have is Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said in that letter to the Corinthians he said, I decided when I came among you, I wasn't going to come with wisdom and all that kind of stuff. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, the power of salvation. Wise man, wise, wise man. Because otherwise it's a hopeless thing to be commanded to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. But we can actually personally 
have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not enough to get us into heaven because it's flawed. And if it's flawed, it doesn't get in. It's got to be perfect righteousness. So I always get in because of the person, the, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that I'm not intended to pursue a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And unfortunately, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to know what real righteousness is. It would be much easier if he didn't give us the Holy Spirit to know that because now I'm responsible <laughs> in a way that I wasn't before. Before Jesus came, I was not fully responsible. I could plead ignorance at least because I didn't have the Holy Spirit. But because Jesus gave the teaching and then gave his spirit to confirm the teaching, I'm on the hook. So he increases righteousness, the potential for righteousness in the world by giving us the spirit and giving us the commandment. But at the same time, he sort of increases sin because I didn't think that was sin before. Now I know it is. That if I look on a woman in lust, if I hate my brother, and I'm not a big fan of that because it convicts me. But then... I'm saved by the blood of Christ, so I'm not condemned. I'm only convicted. And I'm convicted so that I can repent and so that I can get better. Because if I'm being convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin in my life, then I can become better because I'm aware of sin. I'm aware of some attitude in my life that, that I wasn't aware of before the Holy Spirit convicted me of that sin. And now the Spirit's leading us into righteousness. So holiness and righteousness change definitions because they increase what we understand to be sin and, and increase what we know to be holiness. So Jesus basically said, God's more holy than you can imagine. He's more holy than you do imagine. And I'm here to show you that. I'm here to tell you that. And so it it's the idea that, that we can focus on the positive side of something and forget how we got to that. How did we get to this sin of murder? Well, we focused on not killing somebody, but what we've done is we've murdered them in our heart. They're dead to us already. That's the reason that God said to Cain, sin's crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The murder had already been conceived. And that's the reason God had to speak to Cain the way he did, was to try and prevent that murder. He was trying to make Cain aware of the sin that was there and what would happen if he allowed that to rule over him and that it would lead to murder. But it started with the anger. And so his hatred for his brother then becomes murder because he chooses not to rule over it, but instead to allow it to master him. And that, that mastery led to divorce. David, right? David's on the roof. He's looking out and, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. Did he linger <laughs> over that, let's say? Did he enjoy the view a little too much? Well, obviously he did. And so what ended up happening because of that was David did exactly what we know that he did. He coveted that man's wife and then he had to have that man's wife and so that became that became murder became 
all this cover up and everything else. It, it's it's the way of sin. So when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, what he's saying is you've got to be aware of every thought you have. You have to take every thought captive, Paul says. You have to take every thought captive because every thought has a potential to lead to sin. And you know it as well as I know it, that that's not where it started, was not with the act. It started prior to the act. <clears throat> but if we're going to love our neighbors and we're going to love our enemies, then what we have to do is make a settled decision to do that and to banish every thought otherwise. That's harder. So one of the things I'm going to mention, and I'll put it in the notes to the show, is a video that I watched this morning, and it was a, it's on JTV, Jewish television, and it's a debate, discussion, whatever you want to say, between... Um, a rabbi and a Catholic theologian. And it's over this idea of loving your enemies. And, and this is where I want to kind of put a fine point on this sermon is around the idea of loving enemies. It, it, because it comes down to the Christian understanding is exactly what Jesus said, love your enemies. That's an active kind of a thing. It's not don't hate your enemies. You know, that if, that's an easy command or easier at least, then love your enemies. It's a proactive movement toward my enemy to love my enemy, not just in thought and word, but in deed. If, if they need something that I can provide, even though they're an enemy, I'm supposed to provide it. <clears throat> that there's the, what you'll see is the Jewish understanding is completely different. Nope. Nope. Because the most important thing in my life is to take the gifts and talents that God gave me when he created me in his image and make those as, as good as they can be, to do everything I can to maximize the use and the value of those in the world. And if then I have an enemy who wants to come and take that away from me, to take my life away from me, as the example he uses, then, then I am bound to, to fight back and to attack. In that instance, I'm, I, I have to fight back. And so it's okay to hate that enemy because that enemy wants to destroy God in me at some level. And there's no way to bridge that gap between what that Christian philosopher said and what we as Christians know to be true and that Jewish understanding. And y'all know how much I love looking at all the Jewishness of the faith but the reality is, is Jesus comes and says, no, it's got to transcend that. You guys don't understand enough. And what I would generally say to that is because you don't want to. And the proof of that is sort of the parable of the Good Samaritan when, when the guy comes and said, um, so I got to love my neighbor as myself. So who's my neighbor? Because he wants to limit <laughs> the number of people draw boundaries around who he has to love. And so Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he doesn't tell us anything about the man who's victimized in this story. We don't know anything about him. He's a guy, he's near Jerusalem, and he's beaten and robbed. Huh. Well, I'm not going to go through that whole story. But at the end of the story, Jesus, after the Good Samaritan, has provided for the man's needs and cared for him and spent time with him and everything else. Jesus says, so who was the neighbor. So he's not defining it in terms of who is my neighbor. He's defining it in terms of what does it mean to be a neighbor? Well, if you see someone in need who you can help, then they're your neighbor. So what do we do? Well, we, we build gated communities. 
We do things where we don't have to come in contact with anybody who might actually have need of me. But in that particular instance, what the interesting thing is, is the way that that question of who was the neighbor is answered. The parable is the parable of the good Samaritan. Everybody knows that. Everybody on earth knows that. There are good Samaritan laws on the books. In fact, that's the end of Seinfeld. Um, is their failure to act as good Samaritans in the case of they see a crime being committed. And so that's the whole thing. The good Samaritan law is if you see someone in danger and a personal crime being committed against them, then you have an obligation to do whatever you can in that instance. So everybody, whether you're Christian, Jew, nothing, whatever, you know what a good Samaritan is. Well, the one person who seems not to know that is the person who asked the original question, who's my neighbor? Because when Jesus says, who was the neighbor? The response is, I guess the one who did him good. Not the good Samaritan, because I hate the Samaritans. I mean, there's a perfect proof of exactly how this can look. I can hate the Samaritans. It's perfectly okay for me to hate the Samaritans. It's okay largely because they claim to be the true Israel and that we are false. And so I can hate them because they're heretics and that they hate God's people because we're God's people and they're not God's people. So Jesus tells the story where the hero is a Samaritan. To think that a Samaritan got it right and we all got it wrong because that was your story that said a Levite and a priest and all passed him by. But the guy who got it right was the guy who's the heretic. Yeah, that's hard. That's really hard. But Jesus tells it. And you, can you just imagine the smile on Jesus' face when that guy says, the one who did him good? <laughs> you just couldn't say it because you could not bring yourself to say that word in that context. He can't be the hero. It's hilarious. But, but that's where that hate kind of thing that I'm talking about comes from. You see the fine point that's being put on it because the, the impulse is always to limit and draw boundaries around the commandment. It's not to expand those limits. It's to contract those limits. What's the least I can do to keep this commandment? I'll give you another example. This is a freebie out of nowhere. <clears throat> so at Passover, there's a commandment, right? To get rid of all the yeast in your house. So if you visited some of the websites that I visit and you get emails from those sites, which are all Jewish sites. And, and I'm not picking here. I'm just laughing because what I'll get is appeals to me right around Passover to, to help my Jewish friends out by buying their leaven. Here's how that works. <laughs> I put the money up <laughs> to buy their leaven. There's a special place in their house where all that leaven can be stored. Well, the likelihood of me receiving leaven from anybody that I bought it from is nil. So it's stored in there, but that's mine. That, that spot, everything there is mine until the day after Passover ends, and then it reverts. <laughs> I, I, I owned it, but now I don't own it. Anymore. It's not mine anymore. The day after Passover no longer belongs to me. So you, you, you've sold, I've got air quotes, you've sold me your leaven, but you and I both winked at each other knowing that I'm not ever going to take possession of that. 
and that you'll have possession of it because I'll sell it back to you at some level after that. But wouldn't the right thing, because this money's going to go to a good cause, wouldn't the right thing just be for you to let it go as a donation? <laughs> so that it's what's the least I can do and keep that commandment. And the least I can do is I can sell it to a Gentile for a few days so that, well, I'm absolved, they're absolved, and now they've made a donation. So they can feel good too. So you've done all the, what a nice thing. And God just, I'm positive, shakes his head at this. And says, you're not understanding the commandment. You're not even valuing the commandment. Christians never, ever do anything like that rolling his eyes, John rolling his eyes at himself for figuring out the least that he can do in many instances to keep a commandment. But the funny thing is, what did we do? And, and what's the problem in all this? The problem in all this is, is that we fail to recognize who God is. When God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and, and Moses wants to know who's there, he asks the question, God, and, and then the response is, and Elohim, the God of justice, spoke unto Moshe, saying, I am Yahweh, the God of mercy. So the God of justice said, I'm the God of mercy. It's both. As I said last week, it's both and. And then, so how is that possible for you to be the God of justice, which is strict justice, which means that if you break this law, then period, end of sentence, there's a punishment for that. How can the God of justice be also the God of mercy? Because he's God. Because he goes on later to say, I'm one. So in spite of the fact that it looks like two, I'm one. In spite of the fact that I said I was the God of justice and I'm the God of mercy, it's not two, but it's one. And so what we say is, yep, extend that premise out to the three persons of God. The same essence, but three persons. Unity in diversity. A person. So that unity is possible only in God. Except he gives us his Holy Spirit and we become now this mixed chalice of both person and spirit. And so those things, the divine and the human, are being merged together in us to the extent that we allow it. To the extent that we welcome it, to the extent that we ask Him to be birthed anew in us and live through us in that way, our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It'll never be enough to get us into heaven because we have sinned. All who sin fall short of the glory of God. Jesus lived a sinless life. And the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus did not allow His anger to cause Him to hate even those who hated Him, even from the cross. Praise. To have mercy. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So his hatred never overcame his love for people, never overcame the recognition that these were created in the image of God, never allowed, never overcame the idea that I came to save even enemies like these. It's the thing that makes John 3.16 so beautiful. God so loved the world. <clears throat> God so loved the world without limit, an infinite love. God didn't just love part of the world, some of the world. God loved the world. 
that he had created and those who were created in his image. And so he sent his son. And he loved us to the end. And he loves us forever. In a love that never ends. He loved his brothers. He loved his enemies. He loved the world. And he came to die for the world. It's our job and our joy to proclaim that kind of love in word and unfortunately in deed. <laughs> because we have to love as Christ loved because he loved us, John says. We love him because he first loved us. And then he sends us in the world to proclaim him in word and deed. Because Jesus unfortunately says this. <clears throat> he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. So in other words, what he's saying is, if you relax the commandment in your life, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Unfortunately, he puts does before teach. Because the reality is I can't teach you to do something that I don't do myself. It's not possible for me to teach what I can't do. I can tell you, but I can't teach you <laughs> because I haven't done it. So I don't know how to instruct you properly. I can tell you what not to do but I don't know how to teach you what to do unless I've done it myself. That's all I have to give you. And so Jesus teaches, though, and then he does. So he's taught new things, but in order to teach those new things and to make that teaching stick, he has to live it out. He set a high bar not for us. He set a high bar for himself here in this teaching. He set the bar and said, Open your eyes and watch. And then he did all of it to show that we could do it too with his help, with the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's who he is. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding today.